Hello, new audio friends. You and I are going to be going on a journey for the next little while on the Sound Girls podcast because I'm your new host. My name is Rebecca Wilson, and I've been mixing audio for over 20 years, mostly on tour and mostly as a concert monitor engineer. And while I can't promise to be witty or even fabulous, really, I can promise you that I'll try my best to make each show a good use of your time. And I'll always include a little tech, a little insider info, but really my biggest hope is that these podcast conversations will inspire you to try something that you may not be so sure that you can do. And the Sound Girls mission is utterly important to me because getting more women and diversity into the audio industry is a must. And Sound Girls has been crushing it, okay? The impact it's making is real. Just look at the equal directory, the workshops, the job boards, the blogs and profiles, and this podcast. Sound Girls is shaping the future generations of audio professionals. So use it. It's a resource that can give you skills and connections that can change your whole career path and your entire life, really. It's a powerful thing. I'm truly honored to be a small part of it. So that's my spiel. And I'm looking forward to rolling out a lot of awesome interviews for you in the next few months. Okay, so let's get back to the real deal stuff. Hey there, audio friends, Rebecca Wilson here. And if you're interested in getting into podcast work, do not miss this episode. I had the pleasure of talking with Anya Zhezik, a New York-based sound designer who works on shows such as Radiolab, May I Elaborate, The Big Fib, and a slew of other top-tier shows. We talked about her unbelievable cold call luck, the podcasting world, and her most recent job sound designing for the Kennedy Space Museum which included, yes, designing audio experiences using sounds from space. Plus, she gives some straight-up ideas on how she overcame her biggest hurdle, herself. She's a musician, a sound designer, a front-of-house mixer, and I hope you love what she says as much as I did. Hi, let's try that again. (laughs) Hello, how are you? I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you for coming on. Oh my Uh, God, I just... Thank you so much for asking me to do this. It feels like a huge honor. Oh, believe me, your experience is so wide. I was just thrilled when I took over the hosting and and your name wasn't on there. I was like, I know who I'm calling. You're my third guest. You were my first call, but my third guest. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I guess today I just want to start especially with who, like, how you got into sound and, and who helped you get into it and just kind of that experience if there was a who yeah sure so I grew up in a musical family I started playing viola when I was six years old and uh my parents had this they're they're Polish and they had this very sort of old world way of seeing things where they thought like they could raise us as professional musicians so we had like private lessons and played in orchestras and everything so I was on track to become a professional musician but as I grew older, became a teenager, I realized I didn't want to play eight hours a day or practice eight hours a day. And I didn't want to, um, I didn't like the competitiveness of the classical music scene. And um, it just so happened that my my father was a musician and he had some recording equipment at home. I mean, this was the 90s. He had like a little Mackie mixer, a couple of mics, a, you know, a double cassette deck or whatever. And I just started messing around with it. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. I can like manipulate music. I could be a part of music without practicing eight hours a day. 
And so I started looking into it and I was like, oh, this is actually a thing that people do. People work at recording studios and they record albums. And I yeah. thought that was pretty freaking cool. And, um, and, you know, and at the same time, I was at the age that I needed to figure out if I, you know, what, you know, if I was going to pursue a degree. I knew I wanted to go to college for a four year degree. Um, it, there was really only a small handful of schools that offered a four year degree in audio engineering at that point. Um, but eventually, I actually ended up finding one in New York City at the City College of New York. There's a program there called the Sonic Arts Program that I um, highly recommend. It was a great and place is it, for me is to it learn. mostly focused in one particular vein of audio or? Uh, stu- like studio recording, production. Okay. Yeah, there's a couple of, I, I can't remember if we actually did anything live sound related. I think you'd have to go to like Full Sail maybe, I think had programs for that stuff like that. So it was mostly studio stuff and it was a music degree as well. So, you know, music theory, that composition. Um it was great. Um, I also knew, though, that I needed practical experience, so I interned at recording studios as well. Um, and did you grow up in New York? Where did you grow up? Oh, I was I on mean, the I was on the West Coast, uh, California and Washington State. Which part of Cali? Uh, Bay Area, Hayward. Ah, okay. Yeah, I was in SoCal, but anyways. <laughs> So, th- so you came out here. So, um, kind of around what age were you when you got the degree? And was did you have a significant amount of experience before that, or do you feel like that taught you the most? Or so I, I was let's see, I was nineteen when I moved to New York. Uh, I'd already had some community college behind me, so uh, I finished up my degree. So I was probably t- twenty-two when I finished up. I had to work part time while I was in college to pay rent and everything, but I did try to work as many, like I tried to work sessions. I, you know, made friends with engineers that I just, they're like, we can't pay you. And I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to show up. Can I just set up mics? Can I just watch you work? Um, So I feel like I I knew that I needed that to go along with the theory and all that. Um, I did get my first major internship. My first major thing was, I believe I still had one year of college left Though, like, my memory is pretty fuzzy about this, but when I got the gig to be an intern at Blue Man Group's production studio. So you started as an intern at Blue Man. I did. That's incredible. How long were you there? Oh, wow. Um, Let's see. 13 years on and off. I mean, there was a chunk of that that I was, like, freelance and traveling and doing stuff for them. So I wasn't, I didn't have, like, a full-time position there. Um, But there was a couple different positions and doing all sorts of stuff because I started out in the production studio but I ended up like in a complete completely different place there and what what is the production studio for blue man group look like I mean they're they're live they're touring they're multi-dimensional multi-instrumental it's percussive it's great so tell me a little technically about it oh the amount of drum you've probably never seen so many drums in your entire life I mean I, I could guess that there might have been like five or six like full drum kits just to start with because then there was just to start with because there was all the other percussion instruments that they had like massive percussion rigs um it was this uh it was actually an old theater space on third street between b and c in the lower east side and all along the walls were just lined with instruments and things like that so the the live room that was also the live room was this sort of like large sort of black box space um that was where we did the recording in uh which was like a little bit challenging but it was great they had an ssl console 
amazing wow like, really gra- grace preamps grit like earthworks mics like oh the works it was like it was kind of a dream place to be able to sort of hone your skills at so question about that record so what would they record for i mean they didn't is it just practice rehearsal recordings or did they release stuff oh yeah they actually put out a few studio al- albums hmm. um they didn't put out any full-length albums while i was there but there they would put out singles uh they so it was also a rehearsal space for sure so when sometimes they had tours there for rehearsals and things like that but there, there kind of was always some music projects being worked on whether it was like they were putting out some music or they were doing a co- collaboration with another artist um they just were heavily in that sort of creative mode back then and there was a lot to do and a lot of drum editing to do a lot I was just gonna of say, drum editing I- I was just going to say drums for me, I mean, they're the hardest thing to mix for me. I just think they're so dynamic and they can change from day to day. Oh, but wow. yeah. You may not agree with that, but I'm very curious as to any kind of techniques that you used. To, I mean, how do you deal with that much percussion and get separation? Oh, I mean, honestly, that was that was so long ago. But I, I think it's really just trying to find like there was enough differences between like the different percussion rigs and the different types of drums that there were that you could pick out certain sort of frequencies and timbres from each ones. Um, but it does get muddy and messy really quickly. You take out a lot of low mids. That's all. That's it. I mean, that's probably <laughs> just like the big blanket thing that you could do uh, to keep it from getting really muddy. Yeah. And then as far as what else they had going on on the stage besides percussion, I don't I don't remember. But could you just tell me a little bit about what else that looked like? Yeah, the instrument. Well, for instance, I mixed the show in New York for most recently. And um, there they have uh, several instruments made out of like PVC pipes. So there's some that are like it's a pretty big feature on the stage. Um, So they're they're two they're different lengths. So they're pitched. Um, and then there's another instrument called the drumbone, which is two kind of larger sections of PVC pipe that they also have like a sliding reed that changes the p- pitch on that. Um, and uh, and then the, there's a band that plays. So there's sort of a more quote unquote traditional drum kit, but there's also a zither, which is, you know, kind of guitar like. And then the Chapman stick, which is not something that you deal with on a daily basis. I've um, seen those. In fact, I just did a project with uh, Bright Brown, who has a, a Chapman stick. So oh, that, no way. that's Can you explain how the outputs work on that? Because it's kind of interesting. Well, it's I, funnily enough, I don't know if I've worked with a Chapman stick in the tr- with it being played in the traditional sense, because it's like they picked up the instrument and imagine somebody just like picks it up and like nobody told them how it works. And so they just start like messing around with it because they use everything <laughs> as experimental i mean it's such an experimental show that doesn't surprise me you yeah. Know? yeah but the chapman stick that i worked with maybe it's not maybe this isn't even traditional i don't know because it was the only one i'd ever seen in 20 years it has an output that's for the low like bass end and then another output that splits it that we ran through a guitar amp that sounds like it was a fender twin or something so it's got this super round crunchy full range tone but anyways so yeah I think I I do remember something about that yeah <laughs> it was really interesting because I had never seen it, anything quite wired like that but anyways so so you started as an intern and then you kind of climbed your way I mean you were audio supervisor for most of your time there or the last couple of years yeah so yeah there was a lot in between 
obviously. So I'll try not to take too long to explain it, but I, you know, started out as an intern and then, uh, so I was basically a studio assistant. I was setting up sessions. I was doing editing, doing file management. And then I kind of got, I started getting bored. <laughs> this is like a theme for me <laughs> where I do something for long enough and I'm just like, okay, what's next? What's next? And mm-hmm. um, like there was another studio engineer above me and he wasn't going anywhere. So I was like, okay, am I just going to be doing file management stuff for forever? And then I like, you know, the production sound engineer the guy who was like the head of like live sound for the company would like wander through the space and i'd be like hey so like what if i want to like mix the show or something like that he's like you want it i always need people like i'll i'll use you (laughs) and i was like really and he's like sure and so i started getting sent out on live performance gigs uh being like working in a studio mostly i mean i had live experience in the past but it wasn't what i'd sort of you know, set out to do initially. And, no, um, and you're not talking about a bar band in front of 50 people. That's a huge gig yeah. to just walk into. And it's really <laughs> complex. So I applaud <laughs> you for that courage. I think we all have those gigs that we arrived at where we're like, oh my God, I have to do this now. The the Like being thrown in that fire, I still can't believe it to this day that that there were people out there that were like, all right, do this. Like, I believe in you. Even though yep. I didn't believe in myself, I was like, really? Are you sure you want me to do this? Um, oh, okay. All right. I'm going to throw up these faders and see what happens. That's right. So then you, so then you started mixing live stuff and you did that for quite a bit for them. Uh, yeah. So I did. Yeah, exactly. So I would do their special appearances and things like that. So I got to travel all over the country, which was awesome. Um, I learned to mix front of house. I learned to mix monitors. Um, and then uh, when I moved, I kind of like traveled quite a bit. I kind of moved away for two years from New York and then moved back. And then I started mixing the show more regularly at the theater. And then that's when I eventually took on the audio supervisor role there. And that included a lot of advance work or what besides mixing? What was that? Uh, overseeing the department and overseeing the theater space. All right. Yeah. So then, okay, so after, what's the next chapter after uh, Blue Man? Yeah, so in... I'm gonna were you always sip. freelance or were you on payroll for them? Um, I, it was, I was, I was on payroll until I was laid off in 2008. That was around that time where like a lot of companies were doing poorly. So I was, was freelance. That was blow up. Yeah. yeah. And then, so I was freelance for several years. And then when I... When I got the supervisor gig, I went back to being on payroll. I see. Yeah. So then, okay, so after Blue Man. Oh, yes. Yeah. So in 2017, I'd been doing the job for a couple of years. Same thing where I was like, okay, I kind of feel like I've gotten what I wanted out of this job. And the sort of the lifestyle didn't fit for me anymore. I It was the working nights and weekends um, it was, I was looking for a change and did you have your daughter at that point? Yeah. So I went back to work full time, you know, like right after maternity leave. And it was so tough because my fiance also worked at the theater and always also had a theater schedule. So for us to juggle the two theater schedules and like an infant was insane. I mean, there were times we left her with like a babysitter that we just met that moment. And we're like, okay, see you at 11 p.m. 
Can you? That's when I get day? off work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're Can legit. You like. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. So it was it was really tough and I was like I don't know if I want to specifically do this anymore. I knew I wanted to like keep doing things but not this job specifically. And um and then at that time I remember I was I, I got really into listening to podcasts and I was like, "Well, what if I got into working on podcasts?" I mean, I could do that, right? And I had all this, like, even though I'd been doing live stuff more recently, I'd worked in recording studios and did a lot of, like, you know, basically post-production work and everything. So I I cold emailed somebody at Radiolab, which is my favorite podcast. Did you really? I sure did. That's inspiring. I cold emailed. This was, like, a month before I quit Blue Man. I cold emailed this person. I extrapolated what their email address is. You know, it was like that like first initial last name at whatever.com. That is <laughs> and so, ingenious. Uh, so I did that and it was just like, hey, I am a freelance sound engineer and I would, you know, if, if you ever need any work done. I mean, it was like, you know, I spent like days and weeks writing this email. <laughs> I sent it I'm off. I'm so glad I'm not the only one that does that. Oh, God, you really? You've done that before? Oh, my God. I, sometimes it's like it starts out so big and then it just comes down to three sentences and it <laughs> takes three days. It's yeah, it so was dumb. right. You couldn't, you couldn't make it long. It's a cold email. It's like you just kind of had to like get the point across really quickly, That's right? Great. So uh, I So I finally like hit the send button and you do that cringy thing and then it yeah. like I get an instant auto reply that was like, I'm on vacation. <laughs> Email this person instead. And then that person that I was supposed to email instead happened to be somebody that used to work at Blue Man Group. Are you kidding? No, I'm not. And so I did not spend weeks writing that email. I spent like five minutes writing the email to this person that was like, you know, same thing. Like, hey, I'm an engineer, like looking for work, whatever. And I got an instant reply. She said, you know, uh, Radio Labs at WNYC Studios, and she said, "I'll pass, you know, I'll pass your resume around the office." And then wow. a couple months later, I got a phone call from one of the technical directors at WNYC and said, "Hey, we need freelancers. Do you want to come on board?" And that's how I started my podcast career. That which is was, unbelievable. Yeah. Which- it's it's really I've always stepped out before I was ready, you know, and I think that's always a theme with sound engineers. <laughs> we always just kind of go there. So then, OK, so you get in there and, and what kind of job did you get first? Was it just post-production or was it live recording or? So it was working on uh, Note to Self with Manusha. Manu- I don't want to mispronounce her name. Manusha Damarodi. Manusha Damarodi. No. Yeah. So uh, she... Okay, sorry, let me back up for a second and take a sip of water because I can tell my mouth is dry. Yeah, whatever. This is, we're lo fi here. <laughs> also, I have like a creaky chair, so I have to make sure I like don't move too much while I'm For talking. some reason, today especially, I don't think I've ever done it at this time, but there's tons of traffic. So, this is sorry, listeners. <laughs> um, so, okay, so I started out editing the interviews for Note to Self with Manush Samarodi. Uh, which was an amazing podcast to be like cut my teeth on because it was like it wasn't like your cousin's 
podcast that he recorded in his basement. This was like, this was the real deal. And also they had a really, uh, it was really good to learn on that one because it, they were really specific on how they wanted it edited. And it was like every single little mouth click needed to come out, you know, like anytime. Yeah, all the edits had to be like so, so smooth. Um, you know, the first cut that I did, I had to go back and like redo all of my edits and they're like, no, no, this is normal. Like you're doing a great job. But, you know, I was so like, oh my God, I'm failing at this. But, you know, and it took me probably eight or I think it took me eight or nine hours to do my first episode edit, just the dialogue interview edit of, of an episode. Um, and those episodes are like 40 minutes, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can't remember, Around but there. yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. So it would take like nine hours initially to edit one. So, um, so there is for us just because people would, I mean, actually people would be interested, but I'm interested. Yeah. So do they have, obviously they have a studio there, so they just do all the, the tracking all in one day for interviews and then it comes to you. And did you ever have anything to do with the, that the live tracking of any of the content they had? So they would, they do have like production studios there so that they would do recording there. Typically, the interviews, the um, they do ta- what they call tape syncs for the interviews. So usually yeah. the, the person who's being interviewed is in another location, and they're being recorded by somebody on their end while the host is in the production studio at WYC Studios. It's a little like what we're doing now. Yeah, I was records. like, oh, yeah, that's kind of what we're going to do now. Yeah, two local <laughs> records, because that's how we're doing it. We're just talking through an interface, but actually tracking on our own ends. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. But yeah. that's I didn't know about that until a ways into my career, but that's such a valuable thing to know. So yeah. anyways, okay, so there's tape syncs, there's studios. Do they use Pro Tools or do you? Yeah, they're fully Pro Tools studio. They do, they they seem to use a lot of stuff through from like post-production and film. So I have a feeling maybe like, the engineers that they took on maybe might have come from that. I mean, there's also broadcast engineers there too. Um, so it kind of, and each show kind of had their own sort of little microcosm. So I also worked on like Freakonomics radio and they kind of did things their own way. And so. I'd love to hear just because I think a lot of people are getting into podcasting now. If you could talk about the different formats that you've seen crew wise and available jobs that might be there for audio in the different formats that they have. Yeah. So one of the things that I uh, found on pretty early on was that there's the terminology is different. So they have a term called an audio producer in the podcast world, which is not the same as an audio producer for an album. Let's say the audio producer is essentially the. the, They're usually like a journalist, like they have maybe more of like a journalism background or writing. And they're the ones that like sort of oversee the production. Sometimes they write the episodes. They oversee the production. They make the calls on editing. Um, sometimes there's, and they also have editors. And editors are not audio editors. They're like editorial editors. Like uh, what would Story be like- Story editors. Yeah, I think yeah. Story editors. Yeah, so um, uh, so that that was, once I figured that out, <laughs> that made things a little bit more clear. But uh, there, typically there's, I mean, it depends on the, the, the budget of the show and everything. Sometimes there's just one engineer that does everything. So they're doing the tracking, they're, they're doing the editing, and they're mixing, and they're adding music, sound designing, everything. Um, and then depends if you, if you kind of 
uh, if you're on some of these sort of bigger podcasts, you're sort of like larger production companies that could be split up. And actually, a lot of times, I think there might not even be an engineer involved with tracking anyways. I think sometimes that the audio producer takes care of that. Um, and so yeah. um, sometimes, like, for instance, when I started out, I was doing strictly dialogue editing for months, I think, you know, for quite some time um, and working on inter- and mostly for interview shows. And then it took some time doing that. And then eventually I was able to start like mixing the podcasts. I would sound design them. I, you know, so, and that's kind of where I'm at now where I don't do that much editing anymore. I do just mostly sound design and mixing. Which is kind of, I mean, I think it's probably pretty rewarding compared to editing. Which do you like more? Oh gosh. the. I got carpal tunnel from all the editing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't want to say that to any editors out there, but oh my god, that sounds way better to be the to be the sound designer. And I love, um, I'd love. Have you ever done any fiction work? Have you ever had to do sound design for like the stuff that Wondery does or all the like yeah. sound effects stuff? I've done kind of more recently. There's, um, I've well, there's this uh, company Gen Z Media that does these kids podcasts, and they're these amazingly like lushly scored uh like experiences you know they hire a compose they hire composers to uh to write the music specifically for that show and they write like you know maybe a dozen musical pieces and then it gets sent to me and i have to chop up all those musical pieces and make them work in the storyline and then uh and then you have to also add all the sound effects and everything though actually I get a little bit easier because they have somebody that sort of lays in the sound effects like very very roughly and then I just and when you say sound effects like stuff that's like fully would be akin to film or like the the like the door closing when they talk or when you say sound effects what do you yeah they're from sound effects libraries though uh but it is that it's exactly that depending on but they're they're trying to really like create the space and that's what you're trying to do right so you know you sometimes you're using like convolution the reverb plugins because you really want it to sound like it's in a nightclub or like you know Uh, like that kind of stuff so that's really fun and then and doing that music editing is really challenging but in a really good way so i really enjoy that so okay as far as other formats so you've worked on kind of fiction and children's that seems to be a really big one uh coming out now they're doing a lot of kids programming um and then interview style and then have you ever done um anything that's i mean what are the other formats i guess that i'm thinking of uh so there's the interview the interview uh the interview one's pretty big the co the like co co yeah anyways we i guess that there's nar- there's narrative so like one of the shows i work on called proof from america's test kitchen like they do some really cool stories about food culture and things like that so they'll have different producers from episode to episode and they're all they you know they're from all over the world and everything and they're and you know it's storytelling, so but it's a little different than but it's that's the nonfiction storytelling rather than the fictional storytelling. Stuff like the Brian Reed stuff that's kind of reportage, and I don't they're they're just creating a narrative. So uh, 
so what for what do you like working best i guess you're you said the sound design part in podcasting and as far as uh repeat do they usually hire you for a series or is it just as needed episodically yeah i mean it all depends uh it depends on the client it it depends on the show some shows are long running and they're just they release an episode every week forever and then some are season-based because they need time, like downtime to be able to write like a, a, a chunk of episodes. So, you know, I'll do like eight episodes in a chunk and then have a few months off and then do another couple of episodes. Um, so I definitely have to Tetris stuff together <laughs> and hope that uh, some production schedules don't overlap too much in certain places. Which uh, is bound to happen because there's like delays and things like that. And sometimes, so sometimes there's a lot of work all at once. And then sometimes there's a little less, but that's freelance, I guess, right? That is, that's the freelance uh, jig. So I guess, so that's where you're at right now. Your podcast uh, heavy in work and you're, you do take some live gigs mixing or not really so much anymore. I haven't, I haven't since the pandemic. So That sort of like sealed me. (laughs) I got sealed into my home that way. So I was already, even prior to the pandemic, I was already, you know, mostly working at home. But I would, you know, go in and do live gigs every now and then. But then it's tough because now it's I get so booked up so that whenever a gig comes along, I'm like, I don't think I could swing this. Like I just, you know, my schedule's too full, which is great. Um, So yeah, I can't complain about that. I mean, right now. So I would say maybe, I mean, it depends. Obviously, it varies, but maybe like 90% of my work is in podcasts and then 10% will be on other stuff. Like recently, I did a like a museum installation project. So that was pretty awesome. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, it's for it was for NASA's Kennedy Space Center. I just really wanted to say NASA on this podcast. That's <laughs> just so what's cool. like. <laughs> you worked for NASA. That's right. I work for NASA. Um it was, uh, yeah, I got asked to do the sound design for a video wall installation that was a feature on satellites for the for a brand new building that's being opened up at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, and it was like a dream project. It was like, it was so cool. I got to research where these satellites went, like what planets they saw, like what recordings they took. Some of them took like actual audio recordings. You worked with audio from space, on yeah. You? Well, I mean, this is in the public domain. Anybody can like look up like what like sun sonification and stuff like that. Okay, um, I still so think I, it's I didn't. Cool. I didn't get any special access. <laughs> I was hoping I'd be like, where, where are the, like the secret recordings from space <laughs> of like you know extraterrestrial life that that you're not releasing to the public? So, how did the audio support the installation? What is it? It was just it's an telling it, the story. Of, yeah. It's an interactive wall, and as you step towards it, it would trigger certain things on the wall. So it would, like, if you happen to sort of put your hand near one of the satellites that were floating through space, then it would, like, you know, there would be some sound effects. And so I did, like, you know, cool swooshes and launch sounds and things like that. And then we had these what we called... uh, like Easter eggs where it was like if you hit like a little hot spot it would trigger this like feature about one of the satellites and those were really fun to do because there's one for instance about that I did about the golden record which is what's on the Voyager 
Uh, have you heard of the golden record? No, tell me. <sighs> okay. Oh, I hope I do it justice. They sent the Voyager satellite out in like the 70s, I want to say. And they put a bunch of stuff on it. <laughs> they put a, Sorry, I'm like trying. I'm like way dumbing this down. So they put a bunch of they basically printed a record on gold and have instructions on how to put together a stylus to be able to listen to it. And what they did on this record is that they put a whole bunch of different sounds and music from Earth so that if someone were to come across it in space, they could listen to this record and hear what Earth sounds like. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the sound effects are like, you know, there's like dogs barking, children crying, like airplanes taking off, like just like regular Earth sounds. But then there's also music selections and there's... There's some classical music there. There's like, I think famously there's a Chuck Berry song on there. And then there's some amazing folk music as well. There's like the most amazing song on there is from Bulgaria. And it's like incredible. And so it's worth it to like look up the songs that are on the golden record. So, wow, that's a really interesting gig. Which museum was that for again? That was for the Kennedy, the visitor center at the Kennedy Space Visitor Center at the Kennedy Space Center. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Wow. And so uh, would you, I'm curious about the technology. So you just did the sound design and then how did they, was everyone listening to it on headphones or was it speaker installations everywhere? This is a, this, this has speakers that are mounted up above the video wall. So there was also going to be some speakers that were within these sort of pedestals that had these interactive touch screens, but those were ended up being nixed because they were kind of like an afterthought and that weren't really working that properly. But um, I didn't, for this project specifically, I, I do know people that do museum sound design and a lot of, a lot of times they design the speaker systems as well. Um, for this, I was being kind of hired on sort of halfway through the project already. So they'd already designed the system. I was just providing the content for this specific project. That must be really neat, though, to see people interact with stuff you designed. Yes, in there. I can't wait to see. I got to go down there to help load it in and like check all the cues and make any adjustments. But I can't wait to fly back down there to see it when it's all like fully up and running with like the public yeah. there. Bravo. Cool gig. <laughs> I think one of the more interesting ones I've heard. So that's what you're doing now. So you're doing podcasts and then just special projects. Um, so I guess I, I like to ask uh, engineers to talk a little bit about what kind of any any lessons that you've learned throughout the years, either being freelance or mixing live or anything that you could impart on people listening. Yeah. Um, let me think for a second. Yeah. Or like a crash and burn is always good, too, oh. if you want to talk about Oh, that. I have a crash and burn. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> so when I remember we were talking, about, I was got thrown in the fire for fairly early on in my career at Blue Man Group, and uh, I one of the first gigs I it might have been the first gig I was sent out on. I'm not even it could have been. I, there's a really good chance it was was to do front of house for the audience for an appearance on the Ellen Show. In Orlando, Florida. Oh my God! In your first gig. Mm-hmm. 
And um, a tiny studio with all the percussion. Yeah. Oh my well, God. actually, this was different. This was outdoors, which is I think oh, kind of okay. was almost worse. And yeah. then I don't know. I don't know. I don't know which one's worse. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I was given very little instruction on any. Like I was just sort of like I was just tossed in there, and um, they were perform. You know, it was it was a live. I think it was a three piece band with the three blue men. The blue men were playing the drumbone, which is that like the instrument the that was kind of made famous with the Intel Pentium commercials or whatever that you've seen. Maybe okay. people have seen. They're now really old, I guess. <laughs> and so uh, um, I, when, you know, we barely had a sound check. That's the way things go, right? You have like no time to like set up and sound check and everything. And then it was okay. go time. And it was, it was, it was live to tape. And the band started playing and I threw up those faders. It was like, you know, the gunshot went off and the gates flew open. And I was just feverishly trying to throw together a mix. You know, I and then I also was supposed to be hitting sound cues. And <laughs> oh my God. I realized about five seconds after the fact that I missed my sound cue, I was supposed to like hit like a keyboard that was going to trigger a punch sound because it was like this like slapstick bit. And oh, um, and I missed it. And the co-founder slash creative director of the company was like right beside me and is like, what? Waiting, what just happened waiting. like are, you didn't hit the cue you know <laughs> and i was like oh my god this is like this was live you know like the audience is here and yeah. so so well oh and i made the drumbone feedback did i say that already no that's what you said you threw up the faders and it was all gates open but then was there any oh yeah of- i made i made it fe- i made the main instrument feedback in the it PA. was just a, a rip, a ripping feedback. So it was yeah. like, you know, the, the like <laughs> the sound engineer that was doing the broadcast mix that that you know brought me down there. He's like, yeah, so you you made it feedback. You should have, you know, you should have pulled some two fifty out of there. I'm like, oh, good to know after the fact. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I love that. Those shows always made me nervous because the union engineer guys were always just. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if Ellen was union, but I always found that they they didn't like guest engineers, and usually oh, it was no. a bad show. I don't know why, but they they often went poorly. Yeah, <laughs> like the Leno show or Letterman or something. It was, but anyways, it's true though. Um, they all had their own things. Like they didn't. They're like, here are your faders. Don't touch anything else except for like these are your faders. And I'm like, oh, okay, right. I swear I won't touch anything else. You know. I know, so. and in union houses, they won't even let me do that. I have to stand there and, and oh, tell yeah, them. Oh, yeah, that too, yeah. It's crazy. I've yeah. been or in both situations, get, yeah. Yeah, or you get half the inputs that you advanced, and it's just, okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so that's a great story. Yeah, so, uh, and that, so that, that one, it did, um, I did, I, I knew that it was live to tape, not live to air, and so I was like, hey, guys, check it out. Can we, like, lay in that sound effect like before it goes to air. And so they like, you know, our producers talk to their producers and they're like, yes, like send us the, the, send us the file and we'll lay it in. So, you know, after the gig was done, I was so just mortified and dejected. And I'm like, you know, I'm flying home back to New York and I'm just like, oh, this is so bad. But I get a call, like as soon as my phone works, when I land, you know, the, the producer on the gig calls me and she's like, go straight to the recording studio, go get that file and let's send it to the show producers so they could put it in. So thankfully it made it in. 
after problem the fact. solved. That's good. I know. It's it's funny those little things where you it feels like the world's on your shoulders. In some ways it kind of is, you know, especially in live, but um, yeah. bravo. So, I guess as we sort of wrap up, is there anything you would want to just tell anyone that's thinking about going into audio design or or whatever audio engineering that's that's kind of uh, up and coming where the jobs are. I mean, obviously podcasts we talked about, but anything that you could recommend? I think one of the hurdles that I had to overcome was one that I placed in front of myself, which was imposter syndrome. That's something I've, I've shifted gears enough times from like one industry to another that like anytime I'd move into doing, you know, live sound from doing studio or, or, you know, working on something for film, I haven't really done anything for film, but like, that's just an example, right? It's a different industry. I'd be like, what am I doing? I can't do this. I don't have the skills for this. They're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm going to crash and burn. And that's never the case. I mean, except for that one time I did the feedback and miss, <laughs> missed that cue. But like, yeah, but but truly, it's so true. I was also like, audio. you know, twenty two years old or whatever. Exactly, exactly. But I think I think you make a good point there. Is that we just never feel ready or really, you know, qualified until you just even now. I mean, sometimes I'm like twenty nine years into audio and I'm like, well, I've never really quite done that, so I feel like I. I don't yeah. know how to do anything, you know, or I won't be able to, or exactly, now, you know, exactly. I think especially starting out, that's really great advice on you. Yeah. And because, yeah. yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, because in the end there is in audio, especially, you know, we might go to school or we might not, but there, it's really all about work experience. So to just step into the experience is the best teacher there is ever. Yeah, exactly. How else are you going to learn how to do yeah. it? Yeah, I was told to just go in there with the confidence of a mediocre middle middle aged white guy, and <laughs> and then you're all set. Well, it seems like it's worked out pretty well for you. I mean, the shows you've been on are world class, international shows that you work on, and I know that you've you know, I mean, you really have quite an outstanding career for how young you are, and the diversity that you show in audio is, is I, you have my respect on you. Thank you so much. I, I, there's so, like, I feel super lucky because some of these things are just like, you know, sometimes it just feels like things fall into your lap and you can't believe the it. Cold call to Radio Lab, please. <laughs> you inspire me with that. I should just even try other stuff. Maybe I'll, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so, okay, last question. I always like to give the listeners something uh, as far as a good record to listen to. Not a single, but like an end-to-end record. I'm trying to still promote back to the old school of like the album experience or something that you've listened to lately or just something that's held up or rock, pop, anything you want. Okay, let's see. Um, I'm trying to think of what recently kind of came back into my life. And I think it's, I actually heard a snippet of this and then it just kind of like transported me and this is not rock or pop this is going to be classical this is going to be Shostakovich string quartet number eight I highly recommend you listen to the you know a couple of movements listen to it from beginning to end it's an amazing piece of music and it's kind of funny because I actually 
listened to a podcast about crossover between classical and rock music, and they mentioned this specific piece as like sounding really like hardcore rock. <laughs> like it's yeah. like it, it doesn't sound like that, but it just has that sort of feeling to it. That's like this intensity, and um, it's just. It it blew my mind, to be honest. It's still one of my very most favorite pieces of music. Well, and thank so. you. I'll take a listen. <laughs> and uh, that's your class act, Anya. Thank you for coming on. I really, really, we all really appreciate your input and time. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was a blast. At Sound Girls, our mission is to inspire and empower the next generation of women in audio and music production. We provide you tools, knowledge, and support to further your careers. And we do it because we care. So follow us on Instagram at SoundGirlsPod, and you can find a huge amount of info on upcoming workshops and job resources at SoundGirls.org. Looking for more audio-related podcasts? Check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all of the other podcasts in the Alliance, make sure to visit audiopodcast.org. Our new theme song was written and recorded by Jess Fenton. Thank you so much for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Sound Girls podcast would like to thank our executive producers, Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. This episode was produced and recorded by Rebecca Wilson and edited by me, Susan Williams. We'd like to personally thank our editors from season two, Elizabeth Webb, Sarah Stacy, Angela Mason, Andre Lynn, Daria Lipinski, and Katie Baggage. This podcast literally would not be possible without the help of all of our contributors. And so thank you so, so much for all of your hard work.